right here we are. We're real people. Are we? <laughs> oh, God. Are you a robot? Have you been a robot this whole time? Is this ex machina? Um, I, I'm, my friend sent me a meme that said, uh, don't be a human, be a goat today. Sleep and eat, and if someone tries to stop you, headbutt them. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the dream. What if I did that every day? I'm available. I immediately headbutted Tyler after I read the meme. He was so taken off guard. <laughs> oh, at this point, he should know. <laughs> I know. I know. It's ridiculous. Do you still do the thing where you headbutt and then purr like a cat while doing it? 1,000%. Yes. Because that's the most adorable thing. I think of that every time. I So I do that to my cat like, you know, a normal person does when uh-huh. they interact yeah. with their cat. Uh, and I think of you every single time. I also do this thing bless Tyler's patience, where he will be sitting on the couch working on his laptop, and I just sit on him so he can't access his laptop, and I get instant attention, which is ridiculous on one hand and probably very annoying on the other, and he's very tolerant, but I always get attention. (laughs) You are a human cat. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The only difference between you and a cat is you don't lay in sunshine. Oh, God, no. Never. I would not. Not one no. day in my life. You guys can't see it because this is a podcast, but Rowan is beautifully pale with porcelain skin and oh. terrified of the sun. Thank um, you. It's my highlighter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and ever since we went to the beach together in high school, I mean, you would be the person in your bathing suit and your white t-shirt and your wide brim hat and your beach umbrella having mm-hmm. the time of your life but yeah. you would, <laughs> I remember you curling around the base of the umbrella in the shape of the shade and just periodically getting up and shifting to follow the shade wherever it went yes I had a really good book and you were the only friend on that trip that knew that I was content to do that everyone oh, else yeah. was trying to get me to beach things which again the beach is my hell so oh and the beach is my heaven but the beach is my heaven because I do exactly that I sit under an umbrella with a book and I read from dawn till dusk and that's it like I usually go through two or three books for each beach vacation I'm on Mm. that was a good beach vacation you and I are the only two who enjoyed it that was only a good trip because about one day in you and I went yeah, we're we're going off on our own. We're going rogue. We found the knitting shop. Okay, just to be clear, this beach vacation was senior week. We're talking about high school senior week. Yes, we are. And I will never forget the first day. The They, they had photographers all over the beach because they knew it was high school kids going to the beach to be drunk and crazy. And he came up to us trying to get our pictures. We said no. He came up the next day, and before he could even ask, Rowan went, listen, bud, we're not going to get prettier as the week goes on. So if we didn't want it yesterday, we're not going to do it today. (laughs) Did I really say that? A little bit nicer, but yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. Listen, we're not getting prettier, so we're not doing it today. If we didn't do it yesterday, don't ask us again. That's so funny. That is a Rowan who knows she didn't pack enough hair gel, let me tell you. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, okay, so we started the podcast out as people, then we were rats and ladies, and now we're goats and grumpy seniors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At one point we talked about being plants. 
About needing yes, water? That was last episode. Okay. See? We're just... What is the reverse anthropomorphizing? There has to be a word for that, right? There has to be. What is the <laughs> opposite hmm. of anthropomorphism? Dehumanization. We're dehumanizing ourselves? A, a word No, that know. sounds not like what we're doing. The opposite of anthropomorphism is dehumanization, which means describing human beings in non-human terms. All right, well, that was more negative than I was anticipating it going. <laughs> I don't know. We started as robots, so. Yeah. Can you tell Rowan and I are both in very weird emotional places this week? So weird. It's a. It's been a week. All right, but I am still Rowan Hall. <laughs> and I'm still Tracy Harrison. And we are definitely still the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. This week, we're going to be telling you two stories about rebellious, strong-willed, and perhaps somewhat misunderstood women. In particular, we're going to discuss the fear of women, those feminine figures of story both brought to greatness by man's pen and feared by those very same men who have a hand in writing their tales. I'm very genuinely excited about this topic, and I had pretty much finished writing my myth, which is a combo of an urban legend and actual history, so you're going to get a history lesson. And in the end of the history lesson, I found an article about specifically how a man is the reason the person I'm going to talk about today got their reputation. Mm. I was like, you couldn't have hit the nail on the head better. And it was last minute I was just doing extra research on something and found a whole article about it. Chef's kiss. Mm, it was so good. That's amazing. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about it. I cheated. My topic is rife with articles about that exact thing. I sent you one right before I even knew what I was talking about. You did. You're a very good human. I had quite a lot of sources for this one, which is nice. Also, I did not only research this topic at 3 a.m. There was some daylight research this go around. Oh, my God. Our little girl's growing up. Or I'm throwing off the groove. I don't know. Or she's throwing off the groove. Time will tell. Hey, you know what? <laughs> they can't, they, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. That's true. I have gotten somewhat of a reverse schedule during quarantine. I kind of operate mostly in the nighttime hours. See, Rowan hates the sunshine from earlier. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll I see. I probably would, um, but I work from like 8, 8 a.m. to like 4. Mm -hmm. So that keeps me in a pretty standard schedule. I get to choose when I work during quarantine, which is one of the pluses. I don't know. Wear a mask. All right. So <laughs> for my story today, I also tried to combine elements from various tellings, from historical Jewish texts to modern fiction and poetry. My tale combines many interpretations of our main character. This story also involves sexual topics, as well as the deaths of children, and both stories today mention miscarriages. So please tread lightly if you need to. There are so many stories about me now that no mortal man could say which is true. Well, 
I will tell you as I am no mortal man. They are all true. Every last one. I tell you this so that you understand something important about me. I am Lilith, goddess, demon, succubus, wife, mother, murderer, born of God himself, or earth, or sky, or the pen of a satirist, and no less true for any beginning you assign. I've wandered this earth for four thousand years, and you cannot untell me from existence no matter how hard you try. No matter what they tell you about the beginning of humans in the Garden of Eden, know this. The first woman, the very first, was made not from the rib of a man, but from the earth itself. When Adam, my husband, was lonely in the garden, the Lord God made me as a companion in the exact same way he made man from a bit of earth. We quarreled. You see, it wasn't very long before Adam wanted to lie with me, of course, and I with him, but he insisted that I belong beneath him, back grinding into the dirt while he grunted his pleasure over me. How dare he? We were made the same and thereby equals. Why was it my place beneath him and not the other way around, or both, or neither? He never really listened to me, my husband Adam. So in a rage, I spoke the divine name of God. It granted me power of flight so that I might leave the garden, but it enraged my lord God and my lord husband. Adam prayed to his creator that the woman God had given him fled, and God listened, sending three angels after me to the edge of the place where land met sea. They threatened to drown me. In the youth of my creation, I believe I was meant to find the vast world ugly or terrifying. With my back to the crashing waves and divinity before me, I know I felt fear, but there was just so much to see. And I know that I couldn't access it all with my back in the dirt. I made a covenant with the angels. I told them that I was put on this earth to weaken and kill infants, and that I would do. For my freedom and their murder, I would allow one hundred of my own demon children to die each day. I know I chose to sacrifice the innocent lives of others to cast away my own innocence. But to this day, I do not understand why the envoys of God would allow my horror on earth. Having left Eden and escaped the angels, I went on to marry Satan himself. Then I called him Samael. Like me, associated with serpents and called the personification of evil, well... The Lord God would not have it. He feared the demonic brood we would bring into being, the 
darkness we could create from our combined depths. God castrated my second husband. I'm sure he thought he had me on the run. No, our alliance was unaffected by something as physical as sex. God provided me a playground of mortal men, and he thought he thought I would be ruined by the lack of erection of one god. <laughs> no. I go about dallying with men in the night, blamed for their nocturnal emissions, yes, but credited for the goddess of their dreams. I gain seed for hosts of demonic children, and they learn about positions other than missionary. It seems a fair trade. The unfairness of it all is really that the wives must launder the sheets the next morning while their husbands blame a demon woman who flies through the air for their imagined unfaithfulness. <laughs> but they do not call me mistress of household chores, so what have I to do with that? There was a time they called me Queen of Sheba. Bedecked in gold, spices, and precious stones. There was a time they called me Lamia. Naked woman with the lower curve of a snake, Grecian monster, and devourer of children. They liken me to the moon. They call me Screech Owl. They say Night Hag. Why is it always hag? What is it about age, withered beauty that makes the insult particularly keen to men. I am a witch. I have the wings of a bat, the wings of an owl, horns, or silken hair that entangles men. I am a demon. The first man cannot control me. I have spoken the very name of God and lived to say it again. I kill innocent children. The worst you can accuse me of is lack of appeal to you. <laughs> There's a rumor that Adam separated from his dear wife for 130 years. That he and I conceived the plagues of mankind during that time together. Of this story I am particularly proud. But here's a good one. There was a time I returned to the edges of Eden. I was lonely or loving or curious, and I found myself at Eden's walls. Well, this is where Eve found me. There was instant recognition. I was the first other woman she'd seen, and she knew there was a sameness between us that was different from what she and Adam shared. Eve swung on the branch of an apple tree and met me outside paradise. We spoke, and I watched her change. If I knew then what would come for her later, I might have said, there was much darkness in store for my friend, but then again, I might not have. It's hard to bear when someone can step outside everything you thought you wanted just to greet you in the wastes. 
and then just as easily step back in. After this, some say she went for the apple knowingly. Others say I tricked her in the form of a snake. Yes, let's have all truths. But that one in particular. Protect Eve from culpability, if you like. She is no more or less by anyone's estimation, and the goings-on with the apple still seem cruel, so it is better when you have a demon to blame your desires on. They say Eve and I coupled together in our meeting as an explanation for the beginning of lesbians. I like that. Exclude yourself from the story and leave the pretty, clever girl for me. I'll tell you, she wasn't wearing any clothes when I met her, and she wasn't wearing any when I left. <laughs> she was born, bound, and sheltered, and grew to be a creator in her own right. Beautiful thing that she is. I bear her no ill will simply because she is what I am not. Or so I tell myself in the best of my moments. There is a particular trick that women do. We make it seem easy, natural like birth, or simple like a household chore. We bring together the pieces of the world in a certain order and produce a whole new creation. Perhaps that is why we associate women and birth with the acts of spinning and weaving. I am a woman, yet I am an unmaker of the world. They tell me I'll tear apart a marriage as easily as steal a child from a person's womb. Babylonian mortals will tell Paturian women to place a needle by a lamp's wick or the measure for wheat in their room to keep me away. All right, I see the pieces for making the world, you clever she. I'll stay away, and you may have your creation just for the cleverness you've managed in making it, you daughter of Eve. But you must go further, you see. For when the Lord's angels pursued me to the raging sea, I proclaimed that I have eight days for newborn boys, twenty for girls. In this time I might snatch them into death while breathing still feels new to their little lungs. But it's a simple trick. Again, mother, father, world maker. Hang an amulet with my name or the names of my pursuing angels, though I wish you would not. Choose instead my likeness, and hang it about yourselves and your little one. You see, I cannot be banished but by those that understand me, those that know my names, my ways, my desires, and ward themselves with that knowing. I heard a man once say that, to defeat his enemy, he must know them, and in knowing them, love them the way that they love themselves, or maybe the way a mother loves them. Do you believe that's true? I do. I know you. 
I know the way your body fills with the fresh hope of new life and then massacres itself like me with disappointment each month, no matter what you claim to desire. I know the way you speak and are not heard. I know the way you wonder about the truth of the world, how it is written and unwritten and written again by those who claim that such power is not for you. I know you on your knees. I know you on your back. I know all the truths of you. I see the edges of your wanting defining the very limits of your skin, and I am familiar with your wet smiles in your sleep and your hard and desperate waking. I know that your mouth gapes, your tongue laps, and you let the world in, and your breath sighs of force to keep it away, and I know what you think you deserve, what doctrine you've written, and whose body you thrust into the dirt. I know you. I've watched what you've become since birth. I love you. And I will destroy you whenever and however I see fit. Your lack of understanding only proves that you neither love nor have the power to destroy me. And that is the story of Lilith. I need, I need a second to process that because that actually made me kind of emotional. <sighs> that, okay, I mean, it goes without saying that that was so good. I just, uh, I felt that so viscerally. I felt the anger. You know, I normally I read along with you. I, I couldn't this time. I was so focused on the way you told the story and it really really touched me that feeling of frustration and righteous anger at unfairness I can't even process it all that was so so good thank you I realized when I chose this story for today that I had sort of accidentally created a little mini three-part series for myself in my own stories that we've done so I, I have, through the last three weeks, or last four weeks, sorry, chosen three goddesses that I have always really loved in story. Um, the Furies, I chose to tell from the point of view of someone warning a man away. And then the Lenanshi, the Lenanshi, uh, I chose to tell from the point of view of the person who is interacting with her, who's sort of selling their soul. And so when I was doing research for Lilith, I realized that now I wanted to tell it from the point of view of the woman who is the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Especially because I think in modern feminist interpretations of Lilith, because she's become such a feminist icon... She has been given this life of, no, just this full life. She has her thoughts and feelings about being thrown out and of Eden and living in a man's world. 
and I wanted her to speak for herself. And I really appreciated, and I don't know how much of it comes from the original tale, but the idea of her meeting with Eve and specifically not not hating Eve. That's actually from more modern interpretations, which will be linked in the show notes. There have been a probably very many, but I found writings from a handful of women who retold stories of Lilith, and she is not always a woman-hating demon. And in one of them, she lives in New Jersey now. And in another one, she's a computer programmer. Um, I tried to put that in the story, but I just couldn't make it work. The IT element. I, I, this is exactly what I've talked about in, in really early episodes, how I love taking really older stories and putting them in a modern lens. I love modern tellings of the Persephone's and Hades myth. I actually even <laughs> kind of enjoy the show Lucifer as in some ways terrible as it is, but I, I like that idea of modern, a modern day telling of what it would be like to have Lucifer on Earth. And this is a story, oh my God, the whole time you were talking, I was like, I want to read this book. I want her to write it and I want to sit on the beach and I want to read this book. <laughs> I it was so good and it's I want to know this person this character I want to know that person too I you know after reading the Lenon she story I picked her like if I have to sell my soul to a god I pick her but right I think equally I would very much if Lilith asked and could trade if she could trade me as something as good as creativity I might consider it (laughs) but you know there there are places in the world in which people talk about gods being more active in daily life we sort of talked about that in our last episode and I like the idea of Lilith in daily life it's also important to note that I am a woman telling this story And we are specifically choosing these topics because they were originally written by men. Yes. And I think we're choosing these topics, too, because both of us operate in very male-dominated worlds. You know, Rowan's in L.A., which is just has a whole host of issues. And I work in IT. And so... I think we both have a lot of strong thoughts about what it means to operate as a woman in a man's space on very different extremes. And it's something I could go on and on about. But I think we, I get the, I just get not believed for being the expert that I am on things. And I think you get the other end where people just see you as something pretty and you, you know, you're, you're pretty, you're an actress. Why would you have brains? And I get asked if they can talk to someone who knows about programming at recruiting events because clearly I can't know about programming because I curled my hair and I'm wearing a skirt. Meanwhile, I'm a very accomplished software developer. Yeah, that's so... It's frustrating. It's very frustrating. I want to be pretty and informed. I can have both. Uh, you you know? can have both. You do have both. And uh, it's so you. frustrating when you don't... I don't know. I always think of the example of, you know, I have to be twice as good to be seen as competent. Right. And we are two white women 
and we have to be yes. twice as good. We're not even dealing with the added pressures of race. Yeah, which is a huge issue in IT. Just even to get women of color in IT and then you get, you know, you get a woman of color in IT, which is a hurdle because of all of I mean, it's a hurdle I face just getting into IT as a white woman of that that starting point of that feeling of everyone around you knows everything and you're this idiot who doesn't know anything and they think you're an idiot who doesn't know anything and you know at that moment you are and I had every opportunity given to me every opportunity given to me to succeed my whole life compound that with people who don't and try to get them into this environment where it is already overwhelming to feel like you don't have all the answers the first day you walk in the door it has been a huge issue for women of color and it's something I work actively at my job which I'm grateful that the company I work for is very passionate about women and diversity and inclusion um, in STEM specifically. So I get to participate in a ton of STEM events specifically focused on diversity and inclusion and women. But I'm a rare, lucky person who gets to dedicate my time to doing that. I do love it when you tell me stories about the people that you get to meet in IT because it's so it's so different from the world that I live in work-wise. It's so different. And most of my interactions with technology are purely programs or frustration-based. <laughs> so yes. I really like getting to learn about the the human beings behind behind all of the things in the world, but especially IT. I could go on and on and on. So I'm going to kind of circle it back. Yes, please, because I don't need to rant for 45 minutes about women in STEM. <laughs> um, no, please. But uh, this kind of goes along with what you were saying. Uh, I found this great article. Again, it'll always be linked in our show notes. And it's by Rabbi Jill Hammer, who is a female rabbi that wrote a wonderful piece that I throughout my kind of talk about history will pull quotes from. I'm really passionate about this woman's writing. So um, going off of what you said, to quote Rabbi Hammer, Lilith has become such a popular figure that whole enterprises like the women's music concert Lilith Fair and the Jewish feminist journal Lilith Magazine are named after her. Once a source of fear, Lilith has been transformed into an icon of freedom. While some disapprove of this widespread embrace of a former demon, Lilith's rehabilitation makes sense. The frightening character of Lilith grew, in part, out of repression. Repression of sexuality, repression of the free impulse in women, repression of the question, what if I left it all behind? As modern Jews begin to ask questions about sex, freedom, and choice more directly, Lilith becomes a complex representation of our own desires. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's why, yeah, I mean, that just makes, that is, I couldn't phrase it any better. She, her whole character, she was demonized for wanting more and for asking questions. And now that we slowly but surely are creating a culture of equality and feminism, which are the same thing, but don't get me started on that either. It makes sense to re rehab this character who 
if she were introduced today, wouldn't be this controversial figure. She would just be a woman. It's true. And it's interesting to hold both the idea of a woman who wanted to escape oppression or servitude or diminishment and also know that in the story she then becomes a child murderer. It's an interesting element to me that I can only speculate, again, and as a modern woman, is potentially born from a place of, well, if a woman is not supporting family making, she is family ruining? I'm not sure. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but... I think it's a bit of a stretch, but it's a really perfect antagonist to the perfect giver of life, Eve, for her her sorry her antithesis to be this destroyer of life who was willful and and unwilling to to bend to the rule of others it, she is the absolute right. antithesis of eve okay i'm going to dive into some history because i think it'll give you some more to ponder and i know you love history i do please go on so we're going to start more modern and roll it back as we go We know that Lilith has made her way into popular secular culture. She had a massive place in second wave feminism. Uh, That is to say, the wave of feminism that is cited as having fallen between 1963 and the 1980s. I actually mentioned that briefly in my discussion about Tiamat, how during the second wave of feminism, they thought they created the great goddess theory and how they thought that goddesses being powerful and then destroyed represented matriarchal societies being created and destroyed and in reality that's unlikely to have been true but she is very much linked to that as both a great goddess figure but also as a rehabilitated demon as we kind of referred to her but as a demon that should be respected as kind of a feminist icon um just a quick brief little bit about second wave feminism Uh, The focus of the movement at that time, where previously it had been primarily political, was very much social. The feminine mystique came out. It was a defining text of second wave feminism, and it was making the rounds in white suburban book clubs. Uh, So the mainstream movement was very much focused on white women's issues. For example, the right to work outside of the home which very much is in line with the sort of, pardon me, sort of the more modern personification of Lilith. Um, I'm going to quote a book from 1986. So it was written during second wave feminism. It is called The Book of Lilith, and it is part of the amazing box of books that Catherine sent me, and it was very timely. So to quote Barbara Black Kultov, Lilith is many things. She is a seductress, child killer, and evil energy. Lilith is also one of the essentially motherless forms of the feminine self and arose as an embodiment of the neglected and rejected aspects of the great goddess. Lilith is Adma, that part of the self today's women need to reconnect with in order to no longer be spiritual outcasts. So you got ahead of me, so I'm just quoting that really to more validate what you said. Yay! I actually know things. You do. Sometimes. <laughs> and I will say that book uh, 
is worth the read if you want to kind of dive back into second wave feminism and look at pe- how people have viewed Lilith through that lens. It's I really enjoyed my time with that book. So in a very feminist movement that was focused on sex, birth control, access to abortion, domestic abuse, sexual harassment, and the changing ways that society fundamentally viewed women, it's no longer that Lilith had a resurgence. Um, Kultov continues and says, With the coming of the patriarchy, the power of life and death became the prerogatives of the male god, while sexuality and magic were split off from procreation and motherhood. In this sense, God is one, but the goddess became two. So that idea is not necessarily in line with the original source text, as there are many names of God and many aspects of God in uh, interpretations of the Lilith story. But it is interesting because it corroborates what you said about Eve being kind of one face of things and Lilith being the other. Mm-hmm. This also makes me think of the Madonna and the whore complex. I'm sure you're familiar with it, Tracy. Yes, I am. It is a fascinating psychological... Um, I, I, I hesitate to call it a psychological disorder because it's more of a psychological mindset and it's not necessarily a type A, B, C or a b or c cluster personality disorder but it is a structure of thinking that i'm sure rowan has much more information on so i don't need to go into it but yes i am familiar with the madonna whore complex i will just give it a brief quote so that people know what the heck we're talking about uh in psychoanalytical literature a madonna whore complex is the inability to maintain sexual arousal within a committed loving relationship First identified by Sigmund Freud under the rubric of psychic impotence, this psychological complex is said to develop in men who see women as either saintly Madonnas or debased prostitutes. To be clear, we say sex workers, but I am quoting. (laughs) It's such an interesting complex that has grown since Freud's time, um, as every single thing Freud has ever said has grown since his time, since his initial thoughts on everything were wrong. But it is now something you see in men. A lot of times you see it in um, like serial killers or murderers hmm. um, where they struggle, where a woman can be both. So a woman is a Madonna until she's a whore. And then when she's a whore, she's trash. Or it comes, it comes in line at times with an Oedipal complex where women who are like their mothers are a Madonna. Or if they hate their mothers, they're a whore. And... I, I didn't do any research before talking about this. This is all just based on my <laughs> obsession with psychology and true crime. Um, but it is a really, really fascinating complex that you should go look into and read because um, it's something we still see today that is different than the way that Freud originally described it to be. Yes. And we do see it in interpretations of story fairly often. Again, the more modern the story, the less like Freud's original it is, but it's a it's a good jumping off point. So sticking in the more modern times, Lilith has a place in modern uh, American occultism, including such practices as Wicca. She appears in some works by Aleister Crowley and has been attached to goddesses and powerful female figures from pantheons that originated around the world. Sometimes. She has even made the great goddess all in her own right. 
But if we want to know the true origin of Lilith, we have to go much further back in history. It is believed that the earliest mentions of Lilith are in Gilgamesh and the Halapa tree. A Sumerian epic poem found on a tablet at Ur and dating from approximately 2000 BCE. In this story, Gilgamesh tries to assist Inanna, goddess of erotic love and war. She'd tended a halapa tree in her garden by the Euphrates, and she'd intended to use the wood to make a throne and bed for herself. Gilgamesh defeats the three beings who have made home in the tree. He slays the dragon at the base, which causes the zoo bird at the crown to fly off, and the demoness Lilith flees to the desert. I did not know that story at all. Yeah, I didn't either. It's a... Everything goes back to Gilgamesh lately. (laughs) Uh, One of these weeks, I'll do a story about the epic of Gilgamesh. I'm going to make you do it because I know you talked about it in your college course. (laughs) Yeah, with my um, professor who had a French name and a Scottish accent. I so distinctly remember the way that she would talk about the characters in her thick Scottish accent. That's awesome. So in the 7th or 8th century BCE, a limestone wall plaque discovered in Syria in 1933 comes into, comes into play. Presumably, the tablet hung in the house of a pregnant woman and acted as an amulet to ward away Lilith, who would lurk at the door. A translation reads, O you who fly in the darkened rooms, be off with you this instant, this instant, Lilith, thief, breaker of bones. Interestingly, there is only one hotly debated mention of Lilith in the Bible, despite her link with biblical stories. Isaiah 34, 14 reads, Wildcats shall meet hyenas, goat demons shall greet each other, there too the Lilith shall repose and find herself a resting place. There is a fair amount of debate surrounding this passage. Using the King James translation, the Lilith means the screech owl. The revised standard Jewish, pardon me, the revised standard version uses the phrase the night hag instead of the Lilith. And the 1917 Jewish Publication Society's Holy Scriptures uses the phrase the night monster. Following her association with wild animals, some cite an interconnectedness with a Mesopotamian terracotta plaque called the Bernie Relief. It is possibly from the old Babylonian period, and it depicts a bird-footed woman surrounded by animals, including owls. Like everything else about Lilith, there is much debate about whether it is Lilith at all, And today, it is generally held that this is actually a depiction of Inanna. Almost inarguably, Lilith is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls' song for a sage, again referencing her as a demon. She appears yet again in the Babylonian Talmud, where, quote, It is forbidden for a man to sleep alone in a house, lest Lilith get hold of him. In the first century CE, people were 
eager to protect themselves from Lilith, and they took magic bowls inscribed with Lilith's likeness and other writings, then buried them upside down under the house or in the yard. Archaeologists have discovered ancient depictions of Lilith with her hands bound, which are thought to be a form of visual magic that contains her, as well as the upside-down bowls, in theory, trapping her energy. So, a very brief definition for context, because this is about to be important. According to the website My Jewish Learning, a midrash is an interpretive act seeking the answers to religious questions, both practical and theological, by plumbing the meaning of the words of the Torah. Now, if you weren't excited before, buckle up, because this is the part I really love. To quote Rabbi Jill Hammer again, in Genesis Rabbah, we encounter a brief midrash that claims that Adam had a first wife before Eve. This interpretation arises from the two creation stories of Genesis. In Genesis 1, man and woman are created at the same time, while in Genesis 2, Adam precedes Eve. The rabbinic tale suggests that the first creation story is a different creation in which Adam has a wife made like him from the earth. For some reason, this marriage doesn't work out, and so God makes Adam a second wife, Eve. End quote. So, just like the two versions of the same story within Noah's Ark, here we have an interpretation of the text that allows for both realities to exist in the world together. And now we get to the famous alphabet of Ben Sirah. Often credited as the one true origin of Lilith. Some claim this work is an earnest midrash, and others say it was a religious satire that uses coarse and irreverent tones to explore the author's belief in biblical hypocrisies. Either way, this text that appeared in the 9th or 10th century describes the story of Lilith as Adam's first wife, who preferred to leave the Garden of Eden rather than be submissive to her husband. Rabbi Hammer says of this story, quote, In this version of the Lilith story, Lilith becomes what all tyrants fear, a person who is aware she is enslaved. Others expanded on Lilith's story from Ben Sirah, exploring the Kabbalistic telling of Lilith, the Zohar, a mystical work from 12th century Spain, describes Lilith as Adam's first wife who goes on to become the wife of Satan. She is raised in this story to the chaotic counterpart of Shekinah. I hope I said that right. Or the feminine divine presence. The Zohar tells that the Holy One, the masculine aspect of the divine, separates from Shekinah, consorts with Lilith, and will only end the sexual-spiritual link with her when the Messiah comes and mends the brokenness of the world. Lilith has been depicted in works from Faust to paintings by Johann Goethe and Dante Gabriel Rossetti. She is in writings from Robert Browning to Judith Pelasco Goldenberg to Pamela Hadass to Enid Dame. She's the inspiration for the White Witch in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. And perhaps most importantly... She gave her name to my first car. 
I remember that car. That was a good car. I had that car for 10 years. I love that car. I only just last year got a different car. Anyway, Tracy, I have one last little gift for you. <gasps> for me? Yes. It is science. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so Lilith has also given her name to two things floating around in space. One, there is a metallic asteroid called 1181 Lilith. It was discovered by astronomer Benjamin Joukowsky at Algiers Observatory. But actually, this is said to get its name from Marie Juliette Olga Lily Bollinger, who was the first female winner of the Prix de Rome Composition Prize. That's cool, but here's the cooler one. Okay. According to astrologer Walter Gorn Old in 1918, to quote Wikipedia, Lilith is a hypothetical second moon of Earth, supposedly about the same mass as the Earth's moon. This was discredited by the scientific community at the turn of the century, but the reference is not lost on me that Lilith is associated with the dark moon. And speaking of sci-fi, if anyone can figure out the half-quote idea that I plugged into my Lilith story from a famous sci-fi series, you get bonus points. Please Instagram or tweet at us. I'm going to have to re-listen to this to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was watching the movie adaptation for it whilst I was doing research, and I, I left a little Easter egg. So, now that I've taken up so much time, Tracy, what are you doing this week? I am doing, as I mentioned earlier, um, I am doing two things squished into one. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is a kind of urban legend I think all of us know. And then I want to talk about the person that most likely inspired that urban legend. Okay. I'm talking about Bloody Mary. No, stop it. We did Bloody Mary in the bathroom of my house. Yes, we did. And I... So I, as I mentioned before, am fascinated by ghost stories, but weirdly terrified of them. Like, I just get the heebie-jeebies, the, the chills up my spine, even thinking about it. So researching the Bloody Mary game part of this, I must have turned around at my desk at no noise. Like, no noises were happening. And I turned around to look behind me, I think 600 times and had to stop for the night, especially because a crack of thunder from a thunderstorm was right in front of the window that I work in front of. And I got up and walked downstairs and said, nope, I'm done for today. I, I'm no thank you. Not to be very contrary, but you could do the thing that I do, whereas once you are afraid there's a, a ghost in your room, you say, okay, there probably is a ghost in my room and you your fear of it has manifested it into existence because all things that we believe are somehow real it's called a tulpa and yes <laughs> and then you just start talking to it and ask it for help with your research <laughs> that's a good idea i'll do that next time wait did you say there's a name for that tulpa uh, well, there's a thing called a tulpa which is 
um, a creature that becomes real because of such strong belief in it. Wow, let's have my career be a tulpa, shall we? <laughs> I I love that. I love this podcast. I learned so many good things. All right, Tracy. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start with a quick story, and then we'll jump into some facts. I walk into a room. It's dark. The only light emanates from my candle, flickering dimly in the darkness. My heart is racing, and I can hear the other kids laughing outside the door, but they sound so far away, it's like they're in another world. And maybe they are. For all I know, I'm alone inside of this tiny world in this tiny, dark, lonely room. Taking a long, deep, shaky breath, I summon all of the courage inside of me and face the mirror. I see my reflection, flickering back at me through the light of the small flame I hold in my hand. Nothing out of the ordinary so far, just the one scared face staring back out of the glass. <sighs> okay, it's time. If I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it at all. I open my mouth and say her name. Bloody Mary. Once, twice, three times, then I pause, staring, but nothing appears. Okay, I'm shaking now. I keep seeing my own face in the mirror and, and no one else's, so I speak again. I say her name over and over again, Bloody Mary, and so many times, eventually I lose count. I blink. That's my mistake. I blink and suddenly she is there. Long, dark hair, black eyes, and blood all over her face. I scream. Or rather, I try to, but I, I can't move, I can't breathe, I can't think except about what she's going to do to me. She tilts her head to the side like a bird and looks at me. She doesn't smile. She doesn't frown. She just stares. I'm trapped. I called her, and she came. And now I'm trapped. Slowly, painfully slowly, she reaches her hand out of the mirror right at me, and I still can't move. Then faster than I can even process, she drags her sharp fingernails down my cheek, leaving a long scratch across my face. The sudden pain wakes me out of my trance, and I move. I run to the door of the bathroom, grab the handle with shaking, sweaty hands, and rush out. I stumble out into the bright light of the hallway, where the other kids are laughing. They see the scratch on my face, and they laugh harder. They think it was all a joke. They think I did this to myself. They think it's for attention. They think I'm lying. But I know the truth. I saw the truth. And she stared back at me from the mirror. 
Ooh. Ooh, spooky. I, I hope someone listens to this at night. Yeah, yeah, it'd be me. And then I'll, I'll scare myself with my own story. I'm glad you did that one in first person. Thank you. I was inspired by you and also some of the feelings I was feeling when I would type, you know, searching for stories about Bloody Mary and you click on a link and the first thing that pops up is this just giant gruesome woman's face before there's even text. So I didn't like that. Did you ever see her when we did it as kids? Because I never saw Bloody Mary. No. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that and the kind of psychology behind it. Ooh, okay, okay, okay. I won't, so, I won't interrupt. Since at least the second century AD, people have been practicing catoptromancy. It's the weirdest word. Catoptromancy, which is the art of divination using a mirror. The legend of Bloody Mary is actually relatively recent. And it states that if you stand in front of a mirror inside of a dark room, holding only a candle, and chant her name, a ghost will appear in front of you. Sometimes she's a malevolent ghost, and she will haunt, hurt, or kill you. Other times she's just a benevolent, if incredibly spooky, figure who will tell you the future. There are a wide variety of different ways the story goes, and no one knows the true legend. Is there a such thing as a true legend? Well, no one knows the source, I should say. Like, no one knows where or when this story of Bloody Mary started. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be that guy. Apparently, I'm just in that headspace today. What is true? What is real? Continue your <laughs> lovely story. I get it. It's good. Can you keep challenging me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are just as many ways to summon Mary as there are ways that she will hurt you once you summon her. This There are hundreds of variations of this story. Yet, despite the terror, or perhaps because of it, many children, Rowan and myself included, have participated in this game. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I started to wonder... Who really is Bloody Mary? And why is she so angry? The most obvious answer, and the one that I'll be diving into deeper today, is Queen Mary I of England, famously known as Bloody Mary. That is the one that I have always heard. Yes. The other two most famous guesses that I've also heard are Elizabeth Bathory, who was known for her supposed penchant for bathing in the blood of poor village girls, Although this is probably false, she kind of most likely never did that. I'm sorry. She most likely never did that. Um, but we can cover it in a later episode because her story is so interesting. You know, why that legend came about and how it came about and why it probably wasn't true, even though she probably was not a great person. Um, the other person people think it is, is a woman named Mary Worth, who was executed as a witch in the Salem Witch Trials. I would say in order of popularity, it goes Mary Tudor, Mary Worth, and then Elizabeth Bathory, who I think is only included because of her association with blood. Um, Mary Worth, I think, gets highly included because it's spooky to say a witch lady is the one on the other side of the mirror. Right. And we'll have to cover the Salem witch trials at some point because I am obsessed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a great Halloween one for you to do. Oh, Halloween's a coming, friends. You get ready. Yes. 
So to answer your earlier question about kind of the psychology around why people see the face in the mirror, as we often do, I'm going to quote Wikipedia. Staring into a mirror in a dimly lit room for a prolonged period can cause one to hallucinate. Facial features may appear to melt, distort, disappear, and rotate, while other hallucinatory elements such as an animal or strange faces may appear. Giovanni Caputo of the University of Urbino writes that this phenomenon, which he calls the strange face illusion, is believed to be a consequence of a dissociative identity effect, which causes the brain's facial recognition system to misfire in a currently unidentified way. Other possible explanations for the phenomenon include illusions attributed, at least partially, to the perceptual effects of Troxler's fading, which is when you're focusing on something and the things around it get blurry, and possibly self-hypnosis. The color of the mirror can also have an effect, where silver-based mirrors portray a more masculine figure, while glass-based mirrors portray a feminine figure, like most people see. You just dropped so many interesting facts, and I'm sorry, I'm going to focus on silver-based mirrors portray a more masculine figure? Apparently. Apparently that's the case. I think it might have to do with the warping of the mirror. I truly don't know. It also could be priming people to see that. Right. This was the only reference I found to it, so I don't know as much about that. But I I have seen multiple references to the idea of um, the human brain is wired to see faces. It's why you look at clouds and you see faces and you you know, draw two dots in a a circle and you see a face. Um, So by staring into a mirror with dim lighting, the combination of Troxler's fading, the flickering light, and your brain's constant need to see faces or attempt to perceive faces to protect us, all of that combined is what can make people see someone in the mirror. And then once you start to believe it, it starts to solidify. Tracy, there's only one thing to do. We have to break into a mirror store in the wee hours and test every single one to see if Bloody Mary will come out of it. I mean, truly, that's the only rational response. And I think that it makes sense. Oh, and film it on a grainy camcorder. Obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the, yeah. Oh, of course. And, and be shaking while we do it and, and drop it at some point so it can film us running away. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Full, full Blair Witch. And closed caption <laughs> every sound. <laughs> go full ghost adventures on this, really, is what we got to do. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so that is background on the urban legend of Bloody Mary. Let's talk about the woman who most likely inspired this legend. Born on February 18th, 1516, Mary Tudor came into this world as a disappointment. Her mother, Catherine of Aragon, was desperate to provide her husband with a son. Despite multiple miscarriages, Catherine was finally able to produce an heir. However, it was to her husband's great disappointment that she gave birth to a daughter. Things would not get easier for Mary as life went on. 
Mary grew up loved by the people of England, but when she was 17 years old, her world would be turned upside down. That was when her father, Henry VIII, created the Church of England, divorced her mother, and married Anne Boleyn. Boleyn also gave birth to a daughter, Elizabeth, and immediately she feared for her child's future. In order to assure Elizabeth's reign, she had Mary declared illegitimate, thus stripping Mary of the title of princess and reducing her to a lady. It was made certain that for the rest of her life, Mary would never again see her mother. Though, rebellious as Mary always was, she corresponded with her mother in secret, despite the serious dangers of doing so. Anne's hatred of Mary was so fierce that Mary feared execution. But she was the daughter of a king and queen. She was strong, stubborn, and she was courageous, and she would not admit to the illegitimacy of her birth, nor would she cower away in a convent in order to appease her father and Anne. Furious at his daughter's bold declaration against his wishes, Henry, finally, offered to pardon Mary only if she admitted to his truth. She refused. Her cousin and ex-fiancé, Charles V, finally convinced her that it would be in her best interest to obey her father's wishes. She would grow to regret listening to him. Now back in her father's good graces, Mary was given a title and land befitting her station, However, she could not shake the title of bastard that seemed to follow her around like a curse. She was severely restricted from traveling, and somehow all who would potentially be her husband never seemed to make it to the altar for one reason or another. Eventually, she was let back into court, and despite still being considered illegitimate, was given succession after Henry's son, Edward VI, Edward was easily swayed by his father, and so he declared that church services, which were now Protestant, were to be given in English instead of the traditional Latin. Not so easily swayed, Mary held private services in the traditional Catholic and Latin manner, a practice that once again could have led to her death. Upon the death of her brother, Mary fled to Norfolk as Lady Jane Grey took the throne. However, Mary was not interested in hiding away for the rest of her life. She knew her worth, and she knew how the people felt about her. So she rallied allies. To quote, The country, they considered Mary the rightful ruler, and within some days she made a triumphal entry into London. A woman of 37 now, she was forceful, sincere, bluff, and hardy like her father, but in contrast to him, disliked cruel punishments and the signing of death warrants. Historian Sarah Gristwood describes the ascension of Mary I as a staggeringly bold course of action undertaken with little chance of success. Still, she rode into London on August 3, 1553, to widespread acclaim. In the words of one contemporary chronicler, it was said that no one could remember there ever having been public rejoicing such as this. 
During her five-year reign, Mary was the first English queen to wear the crown in her own right, and not as the wife of a king. But Mary was single-minded. She wanted to bring the people back to Rome. She didn't care that she was new to ruling. She didn't care that her reputation was already precarious, and she didn't care that many people had no interest in returning to Catholicism. She only cared that she be the one to lead her people back from where they had strayed. This determination quickly made her enemies. The nobles, who were gifted land by her father, land that was once owned by Catholic monasteries, they were not interested in seeing that land returned. She was also determined to choose her own marriage, and she wanted one that aligned with her interest and morals, much to the chagrin of Parliament. When it became clear that she would marry Philip II of Spain instead of whomever was chosen by her advisors, a Protestant riot broke out led by Sir Thomas Wyatt. He rallied people to riot against the queen, convincing them that she was a tyrant and a traitor. He was moving quickly, and his protest was growing. So Mary made a grand and impassioned speech to rally her allies to fight by her side. And she succeeded. Wyatt was defeated and executed. Mary wed Philip, restored the Catholic creed, and revived the laws against heresy. This is when her reputation would be set in stone. Mary, determined to unite her people under the true religion of the land, took action by signing an act shortly before Christmas in 1554 that would result in the Marian persecutions in which an estimated 240 men and 60 women were sentenced as Protestants and burned at the stake, earning her the name Bloody Mary forevermore. She would die in 1558 at 42 years old after only five years on the throne. It is believed she died of ovarian cancer or ovarian cysts, and she was succeeded by her sister, Queen Elizabeth I. So that's the story of Mary Tudor, a.k.a. Bloody Mary. But I want to touch on, quickly, the most likely source of how she got that nickname. Okay. So, as we know, Mary is given a really bad reputation to this day. Mm-hmm. Yes, she did have nearly 300 people executed, but given the laws on heresy at the time of her ruling and also what other monarchs had done and were doing... She was not as outrageous in her actions as history would have you believe. Many kings have done far worse than what she did, and history has treated them far better than Mary. Hmm. Okay. Good point. I grew to really like Mary Tudor during this research, so now I'm getting defensive of her. So, I really enjoyed learning about how strong-willed, intelligent, and brave she was. I had no idea. No idea she was anything other than the tyrant queen Bloody Mary. That's true. I had also learned about her more as a, well, more as running away constantly and then just coming back and being a bit murderous. And that wasn't really the true timeline of things. No, she did run away a few times, but always came back determined. It was more that she would be chased away and then would come back in spite of that. I would love to see just a massive graph of rulers from that time of people they'd killed and compare it 
A, to just learn about how bloody that time period was in European history, but also you make a good point that she, that men had, yeah, you make a good point. (laughs) Yeah. The thing that Elizabeth did that was a little bit smarter was instead of claiming religious practices as heresy, um, and I, I believe she was a Protestant queen anyway, but she started to frame things as treason because people had a harder time arguing that treason was good, but heresy was easier to make morally complex. It fascinates me how intense the battle was between Protestants and Catholics at that time. Especially because when you look at religions across the world, Protestants and Catholics share more than they don't in terms of their beliefs. Fundamentally, yes. Catholicism, as someone who was a Catholic, is strange, and other branches of Christianity um, have some issues with it because of the saints and how we, you know, how Catholics worship the saints. It has been argued that Catholicism is more like a polytheistic religion, and you're you're turning away from the the one true God. Hmm. Um, so that's a topic for another day, but it's just something that I think is interesting. Let me put that on the list of for as a topic for another day. <laughs> we should start writing these down. Truly. All right. To quote history.com. First, it is important to understand that heresy was considered by all of early modern Europe to be an infection of the body politic that had to be erased so as not to poison society at large. All over Europe, the punishment for heresy was not only death, but also the total destruction of the heretic's corpse to prevent the use of their body parts for relics. Therefore, most heretics were burned and their ashes thrown into the river, and Mary's choice of burning was completely standard practice for the period. So, if there's one person to blame for Mary's enduring nickname, it is the martyrologist John Fox, who wrote his 1563 book, the Acts and Monuments, otherwise called Fox's Book of Martyrs. This book accounted for each person who died for their faith under the Catholic Church. The book was so popular that it would undergo four editions just in Fox's lifetime alone. And despite the book covering many other stories of martyrdom, It was the stories about those who died during the Marian persecutions that garnered the most fame. Quote, This was partially due to the custom-made, highly detailed woodcuts depicting the gruesome torture and burning of Protestant martyrs, surrounded by flames. In the first 1563 edition, 30 out of the 57 illustrations depict executions under Mary's reign. So it was John Fox who set in stone, or rather wood, (laughs) Mary Tudor's enduring legacy. It must have been absolutely terrifying to live at that time in which people were being constantly, horribly murdered for their beliefs. And it was divisive because just years before, it was illegal to be Catholic, and now a new queen comes in and it's illegal to be Protestant. Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And when you're choosing between the legality of your religion and it flips that often, I wonder if it's difficult to find a place of personal faith. Yeah, I can only speculate, but clearly it resonated with people. It's interesting that we both chose women that were both good and horrible. Yeah. Murderers with interesting backstories. Right. The the complexity is what makes them seen as evil. You know, we talk about so many kings. Obviously, her father, King Henry, is known for being evil. But why is he known for being evil? For his wives. Not for any of the things he did during his rule. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from a choice few rulers... How how many do you know what they did during their reign, which could have been just like this? But she was the first queen to not have a king, at least until she married Philip. But she wore the crown on her own, and that was huge. So she's already under intense scrutiny, and she was single-minded on something that not everyone wanted— So there was really no way for her to be a beloved queen. And then you look at Elizabeth, who saw what happened and was very savvy to make sure that her reputation was not the same as her older sister's. Oh, yes, very much so. And the politicking going on was very different than what we're seeing in politics today. It's surprising Mm -hmm. to hear about someone single-mindedly going after something that was in many ways very unpopular well we have on the news today people will from one soundbite to the next contradict themselves for approval right so the last thing i want to talk about with mary is something that i discovered while researching that i think is so interesting i had no idea about this fact about her and when you start researching her it comes up all the time but i personally don't think this was ever taught in school okay Mary Tudor has one of the most famous cases of pseudosiasis in history. This is a condition where someone shows symptoms of pregnancy when they are not carrying a child. It can sometimes happen when a person is so determined to become pregnant that their body starts showing symptoms of pregnancy, despite not being pregnant at all. All the worst parts of pregnancy and none of the babies. Yes. Yeah, you get morning sickness, your belly swells up, you can sometimes feel a child kicking that isn't there. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it is wild, and this happened to Mary Tudor, people believe. So instead of trying to rewrite the quotes in a way that I could talk about here, I just took a huge chunk of quotes from an article I read that is linked in our show notes. So her case of pseudosiasis happened in 1555. Quote, Despite displaying the usual symptoms of pregnancy, including a swelling of the breasts and an ever-growing abdomen, the public remained suspicious, and it didn't take long for rumors of a false pregnancy to start spreading. In a time without pregnancy tests and in which doctors could not examine a sitting monarch, the only way to know was through time. Until then, the people of England and Spain, her husband Philip was from Spain, they kept tabs on Mary with a watchful eye. And so they waited. 
In customary fashion, Mary went into a private chamber where she was confined for six weeks before her expected due date of May 9th. Although the big day arrived, the baby didn't. And both she and the servants around her proposed that perhaps a miscalculation of delivery dates was to blame, so they now settled on a new one in June, a month later. False reports almost immediately spread across the country, with some claiming their queen had delivered a boy and others stating she had died in childbirth or that her swollen midsection was symptomatic of a tumor rather than a pregnancy. Despite the world of gossip growing around her, one thing could be confirmed. Around late May, Mary's belly began to shrink. Unable to understand or explain what was happening to her body, she continued to wait as those around her slowly lost hope. By August, Mary finally left the confines of her chamber, childless and alone like never before. She believed that God was punishing her for failing in the mission she had set out to achieve just months earlier. Given that Mary Tudor died most likely from ovarian cysts or ovarian cancer, it isn't surprising that she struggled to conceive an heir. She had another false pregnancy just before her death, and much to her chagrin, never produced an heir. Her legacy was not to be carried on by a child, but instead by an enduring and fearsome name, Bloody Mary. Wow, okay, I've only heard the rare modern story about this syndrome. Am I correct that she was married to Philip I at the time? She married Philip II of Spain, yes. Pardon me. Yes. She was in a legitimate marriage, so they weren't concerned she that she marriage. was having an le- illegitimate child. Correct. She was married to Philip II. He was 11 years her junior and kind of famously, like, wasn't really into her. But he did, quote, fulfill his marital duties. So it was very possible that she was, you know, she could have been pregnant. That must have been so heartbreaking. Can you believe, I mean, she, yeah. And to want it so badly. And, and not only for wanting a child, but it was also pretty widely understood that her having a child was going to be a really important solidification of the alliance between Spain and England at the time. Oh, absolutely. And then she would ensure an heir that was from her own lineage rather than her sister. Right. Wow. And even now with modern science, to be able to know that you have a false pregnancy, it must be heartbreaking. So to not know, to wait for months and not understand... Right, because she genuinely believed that she was going to have a child. She said she could feel the baby kicking. Her stomach grew. She had the morning sickness. And then nothing. It's interesting that there were so many rumors that it was false even before it was proven to be false. Yeah, my theory is that that people just hated her. And, and the reason that rumor is called out is Probably, my guess is it was among many other rumors, but because it turned out to be true, we call it out now as having been a rumor. I wonder if there were any miscarriages as well in her life that would have contributed. Probably. I couldn't find anything about that, but she had menstrual issues since she was a little girl. So her whole life, she had issues 
most likely with ovarian cysts that eventually maybe were ovarian cancer. Could you imagine dealing with that without Tylenol? I, I had to deal with the cyst once and I literally thought I was dying. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was horrible. And it was months. It was months and months. I, I couldn't. I remember putting a seatbelt on and the pressure of the seatbelt <sighs> over my abdomen was torture. Mm. Ow. So I truly don't. I mean, I just through researching this have so much respect for Mary Tudor and I won't ever claim she's a perfect person and executing 300 people is horrifying. I mean, objectively, it's horrifying and terrible, but given the time she lived and the things that she did, I can respect her strength and her stubbornness and her dedication to her own beliefs. We really did both go for the murderess storylines. Yes. Yes, we did. A succubus and a Catholic queen. (laughs) Yes. So there's a really great quote that I stumbled across in my research, and it's by poet Ruth Feldman, and I think it really fits with both of our stories. And it is, half of me is beautiful, but you are never sure which half. I love that quote. I do too. I think it really personifies this idea that women have many facets and I think it is often weaponized you know women are two-faced and things like that but you can be more than one thing so we chose these stories specifically because they explore the ways that men's tellings or what is sometimes accepted as definitive history often depict women in story Lilith is a mythological figure that has morphed dozens of times based on who is telling the tale. And Bloody Mary is a woman defined by different voices throughout time. Should we talk about something good? I think it's time to talk about something good. All right. Tracy, tell me something good. Two things. One is kind of just mushy. I just, I love doing this podcast with you. I love getting the chance to research and the chance to do this. Um, it just means a lot. But the other one is mm. um, just more fun and silly. My friend Casey, who is just amazing and hilarious. Fantastic human. We love Casey. She now teaches all of us Zumba once a week. What? Yeah. Yeah, it's so fun. So Sunday mornings, we all get on a Zoom call and Casey who is a beast and is the most fit person I could ever imagine, um, does a 30-minute Zumba class with all of us. So it's so fun because it's all my friends. It's Casey picking the music, and she's so goofy. So after every song, she's, like, telling us what a great job we did and making jokes about the song and um, personalizes it to what we like. So there's one song she always puts at the end that's, like, a 50s, 60s, like, silly dance groove song that we we love um so i look forward every week to zumba with casey it is my way of getting exercise and it's just like i'm even though i am barely able to breathe i'm grinning ear to ear the whole time you guys have quite the awesome wolf pack of friends you are very lucky like a 90s sitcom group of friends it's awesome they let me play D D with them once a week and it's my fave we beg her to play D&D with us once a week. We do not <laughs> let her. So, Rowan, tell me something good. My something good this week is a book. 
And I do not mean to sound like studious Barbie, but... That's my job. I know. I'm sorry. Listen, hair color doesn't define you, Tracy. It's 2020. Okay. Sorry. Um, it is called Circe. It is by Madeline Miller. And the audiobook is read by Perdita Weeks. And I say without reservation that this is the best audiobook I have ever heard. And I listened to quite a few. I am listening to it for a second time. And it is... You guys know I read a lot of myths. I think this book is my favorite interpretation of a Grecian myth to date. Oh, you're inspiring me. I want to check this out. I'm being really high stakes about this because I think it is that worth it. And it is told from the point of view of Circe, who was a witch in Grecian mythology. But you get a little taste of all the really good stories. And her voice fits in so beautifully with what we talked about in this episode with sort of women defining history and Perdita Weeks has such a beautiful speaking voice that I want her to be my best friend. So That's awesome. Okay, I have to check it out. I I don't mean to recommend books all the time. Oh, the other good thing that I wanted to talk about, but specifically because I wanted to tell you, Tracy. Um, okay. <laughs> I made donuts from scratch. <gasps> Whoa. Okay, guys, this is extra special because Rowan has like a special diet she has to eat not because she lives in LA and she's one of those people but because she literally has to eat a special diet to stay I healthy just can't and alive have gluten or dairy <laughs> <laughs> like to stay alive like this is she's not being persnickety so I'm excited to hear about these donuts yeah so I never get to have donuts I am on this baking kick because of quarantine as is the whole rest of the planet that's not special but I at the grocery store found a little donut pan and I have been using this website called Mama Knows Gluten-Free. The recipes would be good for anyone. You can just put in regular wheat flour. She's great. She writes them really easily, but she had one for apple maple donuts. Oh, my God. There was a bit of a learning curve, but I did it. And they're cute little... mm, They're just the best little bites. And frankly, I've eaten too many of them, but I feel no guilt because I never get to have donuts. I'm so I'm genuinely happy for you. That's great. Thank you. I wish you could have one. I feel like you would like my baking, <laughs> not because I'm so amazing, but because you and I tend to like similar foods, probably because we grew up together. <laughs> yeah, that might have something to do with it. <laughs> anyway, that's my other something good. Read a book, make Yay. a donut, friends. Yes. I. This was such a cool episode. This was a great one. I'm glad we were able to finally get to it. Yes, it was a long one, but we were really excited for it. So thank you. So if you like what you heard, remember, stories grow with the telling. So tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. 
If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power. <laughs>